The Daily Rios Digest, June 25, 2022. Marvel Monday. Let's do another Marvel miniseries review here at the top of a new digest. This is a series that I've been sitting on for a while. I'm going to talk about Kang the Conqueror, number one through five, that began in August of 2021. I did a quick review of the first issue in the digest for October 3rd, but I've since read everything and I wanted to talk it up in case it might have passed you by. So Kang, Kang the Conqueror, uh, Jackson Lansing, Colin Kelly are the writers, an amazing art team by Carlos Magno and Espen Grundichen on colors, Joe Carabagno on letters, Mike Del Mundo doing the covers that are uh, just, you know, super well thought out and very clever. And then, of course, there are a bunch of alternate covers. Kang is one of my favorite Marvel villains, and he might even be close to the top. And I think it has to do with uh, Avengers Forever by Busick and Pacheco and company. And then shortly after that, there was a multi-part Kang story in the Avengers title, also by Busick. And the artist was mostly Kieran Dwyer at the time. And this was around 2001 and 2002. And then, you know, certainly with Young Avengers, the little that I read about that with Iron Lad and just the idea of a man with multiple multiple identities roaring through time, uh, the way he's used as, uh, you know, in the vein of like a Doctor Doom, but certainly very different, very colder, very um, uh, not as bombastic usually. Um, but he's not used a lot, at least certainly not these days. I mean, you know, Thanos gets all the love these days, but I assume that's going to change. Um, and he's got purple in his costume. You know, I'm a fan. <laughs> it really was Avengers Forever. That was the thing that made him an interesting character. I wanted to know more. And I love how that series was very rich and it got deep into not only Kang, but Avengers history and helped to shape um, that character in my mind. So even from the solicitations for this miniseries, I was at least prepared to read the first issue. And as I said, I did that in one of the previous digests and I gushed about it. I gushed about it, gushed about it because of the story, uh, because of the art. And certainly they wanted to put that character to the forefront because, you know, he's going to appear in the MCU. I mean, he already has, but he, I'm assuming, we're assuming, he's going to have a, a much larger role. So I love Kang. I really do. And for this miniseries, there were a lot of new things to me. Firstly, the writers, Lansing and Kelly. Um, I realized I have a lot of their comics in my collection, but they're mostly unread. Um, I think the first thing I read from them was the unpublished Nightwing story from the Let Them Live digital series. And I think I read it and was like, okay, it's okay. Uh, this story, however, they do really well. They, they really um, manage to craft 
a very engaging story. Then you have the art combo of Magno and Grundichin, and wow. I mean, I in my notes, I have several sections where I'm like, okay, I just want to look at that page, and I just want to study this panel layout, and look how great the texture is here. And uh, it becomes a combination of Gene Ha and Jim Chung, which definitely makes sense, right? Because as I mentioned, Young Avengers, right? That's where uh, Jim Chung, Jim Chung did that series. And there's something, especially about the first three issues, that um, it it really works. And I I think design wise, each page, each panel. It makes you, it's artwork that makes you want to look, not just read, but look. And I love that. Not to say that the last two issues are are worse or less, because they're good too. But the story kind of shifts by issue four, and some of the artwork uh, doesn't get as creative, even though there are definitely pages in both of those issues where I'm like, yep, I love that. But yeah, issues one through three were probably my favorite, four and five, but also really good. So the story is entitled Only Myself Left to Conquer, and it's a character study of Kang, uh, really a character study of not only like the Kang that we know, but this pre-Kang, this young 18-year-old Nathaniel Richards who was bored of his post-scarcity life in the 31st century. So then he goes, he finds the Library of Doom, he meets himself, and uh, as as we see it, old Kang uh, sees in young Nathaniel a way to have a second chance, to not only train him and to not only guide him and teach him about the history that he's about to you know embark on, but to correct all of the mistakes that this old Kang has made. So they spend a year on Earth training and learning. They spend a year leading up to the asteroid that caused the big mass extent, uh, extinction event. And young Nathaniel starts to see that, you know, it's not only about the mistakes that Kang made, the old Kang. It's about Kang himself in many ways being a mistake. Or as young Nathaniel calls it, this being Kang is is being in a cage. Kang is the cage. So if he's going to learn from the mistakes of this older Kang, he has to go against what Kang has become, uh, and he can't be Kang, and he's going to do everything he can to make sure he doesn't follow the same path. Uh, Along the way, we get a tour through Marvel history and Kang history. Uh, Issue two, we get uh, a deeper look into Rama Tut's time um, and then we get appearances with Fantastic Four and Apocalypse and this is all in reference to Rama Tut's first appearance in Fantastic Four number 19. Issue 3 features a different Kang. This is the one that made uh, his first appearance in uh, Avengers number 8, you know, the, the very first appearance of Kang and that's where we learn in that issue that he used to be Rama Tut. And in Kang number three, we get the Avengers, we get Doctor Doom, uh, and we get, uh, you know, young Nathaniel uh, trying to, you know, continue to correct some of his mistakes or some of the older Kang's mistakes. Issue four takes place in the war-torn 
far future that initially made Kang a conqueror uh, around the time of 4000 CE. Uh, young Nathaniel is basically going full Kang during that time. And then issue five wraps up back at the beginning, as all good time travel stories should. So the things to take away... Uh, the writers wanted to re- wanted to explore the relationship between a father and son and how those relationships can be complicated and how those relationships can be about generational abuse, uh, abuse cycles, masculine ego, identity, destiny, etc. And that works. You can really feel that in issues one through three. And I think that's why those issues really stand out to me. Uh, you know, we are steeped in Kang lore. You get to see characters like Iron Lad, like I said, Scarlet Centurion, Immortus, of course. And this whole notion of not wanting to make the same mistakes as your father or a mentor, that just resonates. It really resonates. And it's kind of like the, the underlying rumble to this miniseries. But yet, what happens, because it is not only a a story about cycles, but a story about Kang, and then it becomes a story about time, eventually things just keep folding back into young Nathaniel's journey, and he can't escape his destiny, right? There are a couple of references where they say time is often correcting itself no matter what he tries to do. There's even a time where it says, uh, time laughs. And then ultimately, the second part of the story is about love and um, older Kang telling younger Nathaniel not to love. That was his mistake. Um, That's the thing that brings him down. So, of course, young Nathaniel finds love in many different ways, and you can tell some of it is also about the love a son requires from a father, etc. The love that he finds is in the character of Ravana. If you know Kang's history, that is a that is a character that is steeped uh, right along with Kang and all of Kang's history. But there are different versions, just like there are different versions of Kang, there are different versions of Ravana. And I don't know if this is like a retcon, but I actually, I, I like that little twist. So we see many versions from previous comics, but then we see new ones as well, especially when you consider Kang is going on like a 50, 60 year history, right? Um, so even though older Kang said, don't fall in love, that is the thing that ultimately brings down young Nathaniel. And the last two issues are directly about his um, needing to correct the mistake that old Kang made with Ravana. But then, of course, as I mentioned, time is time and um, young Nathaniel becomes the Kang that that we met in the first issue, and he can see that there really is no end point with Ravana. It's always just going to keep happening the same way. So we get some new versions of, of her character, which I liked during issue two with Ramatut. She is made to be an aspect of Khonshu. So we get a Moon Knight character, which kind of surprised me because this miniseries took place at least four to five months before the Moon Knight series. And then uh, we get some other versions, like in issue uh, four, where she's in the future, but that is where she usually is, but it's a different look, right? So it gets a little confusing. I think that's probably why the last two issues got away from me from a little bit, because uh, 
it was still the father-son angle, but it also morphed into this angle about love and finding finding a partner, which was totally fine because it's still within the realm of the journey that old Kang put young Nathaniel on. But it is ultimately uh, the how uh, young Nathaniel um, realizes that he can't escape what he's going through. So it ends exactly where I thought it was going to end, which totally, like I said, it makes sense, right? We're even said in the first issue, one of the, the old Kang says, in the end, I am Kang, and at the beginning, I was you. So it's like, okay, right, it's a time travel story. It's going to be cyclical. There was a notion that young Nathaniel had wondering what it would have been like to have been trained and mentored by Dr. Doom instead of Kang. And Doom does show up in one of the issues, and I thought, oh, that would have been fun. That would have been interesting to see. I don't know if that has happened in maybe a previous comic because I haven't read every Kang comic. So, yeah, it's a really strong read. There's some interesting comments about time, it's like a meditation on what time is or Kang's philosophy on time. Things like the most profound of present moments rot into foolishness as they become the past. Or at one point, young Nathaniel has to travel to the future, but instead of using like a time travel device, because he considers that clumsy and almost disrespectful of time, uh, he instead puts himself into a sarcophagus and stays there for over 26,000 years with his mind active. What? That's insane. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, there's a brief throwaway line about tachyon poisoning, small lines, you know. It, it just really helps to build Kang's character, you know. he, Like I mentioned, he's not quite like a Doom character, even though he is. Um, I, I really, I just really loved it. And the, the artwork completely sold this story, as I talked about. There are some fantastic double uh, splash pages that are just so great to look at. And as you read them, the, the, you read them in a Z formation, from like left to right, and then from the right corner to the left corner, and then left to right again. But the artwork in most of them is very helpful, so you're not confused. Um, the double splashes are just so rich in depth and detail. And then there are some great splash pages for either emotional moments or high points along the way or character appearances. I love the attention to detail with like Kang's costumes, the backgrounds, the settings, character designs, textures, as I mentioned. Um, when we get to issue three, which is, uh, you know, Kang's first appearance or another look at Kang's first appearance, they draw him exactly the way they did back in that Avengers issue, where even though he has that blue mask, you can still see some of his skin around his mouth or around his eyes. So they're really paying attention to not only the, the costuming, but whatever era that costume came from. Um, yeah, just nothing feels shortchanged. Everything feels well thought out. It is amazing. It, it really is like, for me, like it's, it's a benchmark, right? You know, there are certainly better comics or there's comics, um, there's better artwork or whatever, however you want to say it. But I feel like all comics should at least be this, this level, because it's, it's just so good. I really enjoyed the craft 
and you can feel that there's a lot of collaboration going on here. So, um, yeah, I, I highly recommend reading this. And then I guess next up I would have to read the Marvel Timeless one-shot. And, uh, you know, there are some Kang things in the works. So, so Kang the Conqueror, one through five, is an absolute thumbs up, must read, five stars, whatever you need. Um, if you if you can find it digitally, if you can find the issues cheaply, whatever, there is a trade. Go and read it. Gone, gone, the form of man. Rise the demon Etrigan. Timeline Tuesday. Timeline Tuesday taking a look at 50 years ago, June of 1972, and 75 years ago, June of 1947. We start with 50 years ago, June of 1972, as the intro clued you in. It is the first appearance of Demon, Jack Kirby's Demon in Demon Number 1, which would run for 16 issues, created out of a desire from DC for Kirby to do a horror line. And this would eventually replace Jack's work on the Fourth, wor fourth World titles, which he wasn't really happy about initially. Uh, apparently, I learned this from Neil Adams when I was doing those quotes from Neil Adams, that Etrigan was inspired from a Prince Valiant comic strip where the character took a chicken or a duck, turned it inside out, and put it on its head, put it on his head. And if you look at that, he looks exactly like Etrigan the Demon. So there you go. Learned that from Neil Adams. Um, on the cover of the first issue, introducing Jack Kirby's startling new epic, The Origin of the Demon. This all takes place, the initial first part of the story takes place during Camelot, and we see characters like Merlin, Kirby's version of Morgan Le Fay, and the creation of Etrigan the Demon, and then they jump to current times where we meet Jason Blood, the demonologist, and his supporting cast. Uh, apparently, Merlin used a book called The Eternity Book, not to be confused with the book that is chained to the um, Destiny's arm. Uh, and in that first issue, we get the rhyme. We get the rhyme where uh, that he recites to trigger his transformation. Um, it was shortened in that little clip I played, but we do. Um, yeah, in the clip it's shortened, but in the book it's the full rhyme. And then apparently there's also one to change back into Jason Blood, but I don't think that was in the first issue. So 50 years, 50 years of Jack Kirby's Demon. Oh, I did have in my notes here. I think the first time I read Demon, the character was either in a DC Comics Presents issue or in Alan Moore Swamp Thing run during the Monkey King storyline, which totally freaked me out. And then there would be a miniseries by Matt Wagner, a series that ran for over 50 issues, another series, obviously many appearances all over the DC Universe, a John Byrne series, etc. 50 years ago, we also got Justice League of America 100. It is a JLA-JSA team-up featuring the Seven Soldiers of Victory. So this resurrects the team uh, and tells the story of how they were scattered throughout time by the Nebula Man. 
It would continue into issue 101. And in continuity, this is this is the 100th meeting of the Justice League of America. This is a story by Len Wein, Dick Dillon, Joe Giella, Ben Oda, Julia Schwartz. In the story, Dr. Fate tries to contact a cosmic entity to try to get information on, you know, what became of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And in that story, that entity is known as the Oracle. And he looks kind of like, um, oh, you know, like one of those wizened old men. He, he kind of looks like Mordru, white hair, white facial hair. He's very large. Um, but Oracle apparently gets retconned years later, I think during the Seven Soldiers of Victory uh, or the Seven Soldiers series that Grant Morrison did. He gets um, retconned into a character named Oracle, A-U-R, what is the spelling of it? A-U-R-A-K-L-E. And apparently he's supposed to be like the first, the world's first superhuman. Uh, I guess not to be confused with the oracles that Halo of the Outsiders is part of. Um, but somewhere, somehow, that all gets kind of meshed together. Um, and it's been way too long since I've read that Seven Soldiers story. Uh, you know, the whole thing with like Boss Darkseid and the Darkseid Club and, you know, so. Um, but that's uh, an apparent um, uh, retcon. And, it, and I guess if you think about how Morrison used the character of Libra, um, which was also a Justice League villain, um, but he used him during like Final Crisis and all that other stuff. It kind of makes sense. Kind of makes sense that he would then look through Justice League continuity and go, "Oh, who is this random cosmic entity? Let me use him." Batman two forty three is the fiftieth uh, anniversary or the first appearance of the Lazarus Pit. Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Dick Giordano. Um, the story is that Rasha, 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 yeah, how do they say it? I always forget. Rachel Ghoul has been killed and he's on like this slab and um, Talia shows Batman that he's dead and then they all walk out and then the slab gets, gets uh, lowered into this vat and then there is a narrative box that says, uh, bearing a modern day Lazarus arisen from the dead, a mirthless, insane joy glittering in his eyes. Rasha Ghoul is reborn. And so they don't, they, they just say a pit, but because I guess because they use the word Lazarus, then I, um, somewhere along the way it gets called the Lazarus Pit. One more for DC. 50 years ago, Secrets of Sinister House number six is the first appearance of Eve, the host known as Eve. She is an old witch hag at this point. She apparently is the first woman, you know, the ex-wife of Adam but and the mother of Cain and Abel. Um, she would show up in Weird Mystery Tales with Destiny and eventually where she gets more of her backstory. Uh, she shows up in Neil Gaiman's Sandman and The Dreaming. So she was entrusted with the Sinister House just like all of the other hosts of DC Comics, um, other horror line. She had a friend named Edgar Allan. Uh, she had a, uh, who was a deceased human who, who had become a raven. And eventually she would um, take possession of the haunted house. She followed destiny. So all this is a mix of like 
her horror origin, but also the stuff that Neil Gaiman gave her. All right, moving to Marvel, Captain America 153. Steve Englehart starts his long run, Sal Buscema and company. The first appearance or the storyline that would give us the retcon that those few 1950s Captain America and Bucky stories were not Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes. Instead, it would turn out to be William Burnside as Captain America and Jack Monroe as Bucky. So it was a case of, you know, uh, double identities and, and, you know, another Captain America and Bucky running around through Harlem and Falcon has to fight them. And eventually this Jack Monroe would become Nomad years down the road. So first appearance of that major retcon. Fantastic Four 126 is when Roy Thomas takes over from Stan Lee with an updated origin story. Incredible Hulk 155, Archie Goodwin, Herb Trimp, and John Severin. The first appearance of the Shaper of Worlds. He is... Um, a being that would, you know, do what he says. He would create these worlds, and Hulk got involved, and this particular world was, like, Nazi-dominated. Eventually, this Shaper of Worlds would be, uh, we would find out that he is the Scroll Cosmic Cube all grown up. And that was in the story in Captain America Annual 7, which I talked about on the June 11th Digest. Fifty years ago, Thor 203, in a battle against Ego Prime, where, where the Earth gets destroyed, uh, Odin starts to create his young gods, leading to issue 300, and then eventually they would get a running storyline in Marvel Comics Presents. 50 years ago, Werewolf by Night, number one, not his first appearance. Werewolf, Werewolf by Night first appeared in Marvel Spotlight 2 in September of 1971, but he would get his series, 50 years ago, June of 1972, which would run 43 issues, and the first issue was by Jerry Conway, Mike Plug, and company, which means in a number of years we will get the 50th anniversary of Moon Knight. And finally, 50 years ago, Richie Rich Money World number one, which would run for 59 issues. Let's go to 75 years. 75 years ago, June of 1947, the first appearance in Flash Comics number 86 of my girl, Black Canary. Robert Koenig, Robert Kaniger, Carmine Infantino, Frank Giacoa, in a Johnny Thunderbolt story, if you didn't know. Uh, she makes her first appearance in the story, and eventually she would become a regular feature, and then would replace Johnny Thunder in Flash Comics number 92. Apparently, if you listen, if you read about it, you hear from Carmine Infantino about uh, Johnny Thunder wasn't a very popular strip, so it was a no-brainer that a character like Black Canary could easily overtake his uh, part in that book. So, uh, let's see, on page one, meet the most fascinating crook of all time, the Black Canary. Uh, though an enraged underworld would have given a fortune for her identity, nobody knew who she was. Nobody but Johnny Thunder. What did possessing this knowledge bring him? Asked the sinister gunman who tried to cage the Black Canary. What did it get him? It got him uh, replaced, is what it got him. Uh, and at that time, she was uh, kind of a villain, but also she was basically a crime fighter who was infiltrating 
criminal organizations to try to break them from the inside. Eventually, we would get more information about her, that she is Dinah Drake. Uh, she is a black-haired florist in love with Larry Lance, a Gotham City Police Department detective. She uh, is black-haired, but she wears a blonde wig. She eventually would meet the Justice Society of America in All-Star Comics 38, and she would eventually join them shortly thereafter. She was revived with many other Golden Age characters during the 60s, and this is when it was all retroactively uh, established that they came from Earth 2. And by that point, she was married to Larry Lance. Um, then there was a team-up where uh, they battled a creature named Aquarius, and Larry Lance sacrifices himself to save Dinah, and she decides to move to Earth 1. She feels like uh, her time on Earth 2 is done, so she moves to Earth 1, eventually starting a relationship with Green Arrow, and she finds out that she has a canary cry, but oh, it's not the same uh, Black Canary. In a story in 1983, uh, we get a big retcon during another JLA-JSA crossover that the Black Canary that joined the Justice League of America is the daughter of the Golden Age Black Canary. The daughter was just trapped in limbo for many years because she did have the Canary Cry power, but she couldn't control it. And um, her memories were wiped, so that's why she didn't uh, remember anything about her mother, and then eventually she finds out. And as of 1983, we get the Black Canary um, that we, uh, well, I mean, you know, she always was the Black Canary in the Justice League, but she thought she was the Golden Age version. version. So it's not until 1983 she realizes that she's the daughter. And then, of course, pre-crisis, all of that gets, you know, retconned again. She would have a miniseries, a short-lived series, some specials, some issues with Green Arrow. Most notably, she, uh, I think, really came to prominence, um, well, post-crisis, when they decided to make her one of the original five founding members of the Justice League, but also Birds of Prey did a lot for the character. And then she rejoined the JSA in the late 90s, which I thought was a great addition. And, of course, we know the character all the way through to cartoons, TV, and now movies. 75 years, 75 years of Black Canary, yay. 75 years ago, Sensation Comics 68, we have the first appearance of Huntress. This is Paula Brooks, who would eventually be known as Paula Brooks Croc. She would marry this sportsmaster. She was created by Mort Meskin and was used to battle Wildcat. Eventually, she would join the Injustice Society of the World against the JSA. And uh, she would even go up against Helena Wayne, Helena Wayne Huntress, during some pre-crisis stories. Post-crisis, we find out that she was originally known as Tigress, uh, a, a superhero, and then eventually becomes Huntress, Huntress, a villain. I think that's how it goes. And her and Sportsmaster would have a daughter named Artemis, and that daughter would eventually take on the name of Tigress as well, during that same JSA series that I talked about with Black Canary. Uh, Paula Brooks apparently has made an appearance as Tigress on the Stargirl TV show, played by Joy Osmansky, but I haven't seen it, so uh, I'll take Wikipedia's word for that. 
All-Star Comics 36 apparently is the first time that Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman work together in a story. This is also the first appearance of the Stream of Ruthlessness, which uh, can change the behaviors of people. And that is the very foundation of the first um, arc of Infinity, Inc., the Generation Saga in the 80s, where they also, um, where the ultra-humanite got control of the Stream of Ruthlessness. And the reason these three made an appearance here on All-Star Comics is because this issue came out shortly after the merger of National Comics and All-American Comics into the company that would be known as DC Comics. I honestly don't know if Superman and Batman appeared prior to this. I mean, they were known as honorary JSA members, so I have to assume that they were. But because the two companies were split and characters were, you know, in... in um, were from different publishers like Spectre and Starman, were from National Comics, but Flash and Green Lantern were from All-American. I really have to... I, I've read that whole origin story many times. I've even talked about it in a previous digest, and it still confuses me. So one of these days I'll get it right. Comics Cavalcade number 22 is the first appearance of Johnny Peril, although they say whoever the character is in issue 19... Um, uh, another character, they're saying that that also is Johnny Peril. And Marvel Mystery Comics 83 is the final Golden Age appearance of the Young Allies, a team that would not be seen again until 2009, 62 years later. There you go, 50 years ago and 75 years ago, anniversaries for June. The high concept for the Black Adam series is there is no redemption for Black Adam. It is a very, very different look at this character. If this guy does exist, if he is 5,000 years old, if he does have this kingdom in the middle of this turbulent region, what would that be like? He's pure villainy in the same way that somebody like Dracula is. And uh, what we're trying to do is add dimension and nuance. He is now someone who is facing his own mortality and is obsessed with legacy. Every step that Black Adam takes toward redemption causes fractions within his, with his, own, his own country. Rafa Sandoval arrives with a, a thunder clap that is just amazing. Now is the perfect time for this approach for the Black Adam character. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for June 22nd. The week of June 22nd, we have Black Adam, just like we kicked off this segment. Number one, $3.99, written by Christopher Priest, art by Rafa Sandoval. I, this is a no-brainer for me. I mean, it's Christopher Priest taking uh, a look at Black Adam. Uh, really, Black Adam probably was best written during that late 90s, early 2000s JSA series as well as the 52 weekly series. But I am certainly looking forward to what's going on um, in this series as well. There is no forgiveness for Black Adam. This is the reality. Teth Adam, immortal man of indomitable will, must face when he discovers he has been infected with an incurable plague destroying his immortality. Haunted by the specter of centuries of dark deeds, Black Adam transfers his powers to a worthy successor 
who will redeem Adam's legacy and defend their ancestral homeland of Kondok, only to subsequently become mystically handcuffed to him when Adam's plague is arrested, giving birth to perhaps the most volatile and dysfunctional super team in DC history. Kind of feels like that blurb is a mix of Quantum and Woody and the old Captain Marvel, you know, Shazam, Billy um, uh, kind of relationship. So that's kind of cool. Also from DC, Earth Prime, 6 of 6, $5.99. Heroes Twilight, Jeff Hirsch, Thomas Pound, Will Robson. I am spotlighting this because this is the Arrowverse crossover in comic book form. And each issue focused on, you know, one of the CW shows. Flash, Supergirl, was Stargirl one of them? Possibly Batwoman. Um, and they hid the sixth issue cover for a while. And then I finally saw it, and it features the CW Arrowverse version of Magog. Which I was like, what? That's cool. So now suddenly, I want to read this. I want to read this six issue miniseries and the cover is by uh kim jacinto so um yeah so if you haven't checked out this miniseries and that sounds interesting please do from nbm we have david bowie in comics hardcover 27 dollars 99 lammy theory nicholas finney from david jones to david bowie and from space oddity to black star discover the fate of an artist with a thousand faces he is one of the most influential and creative artists of the 20th century. He explored a thousand styles and crossed the ages with splendor. His loss leaves an immense void. To fill it, discover his, incredibly, uh, discover his incredible destiny in this comics biography with photo-illustrated articles and comics chapters presenting all his different persona and stages in a career marked by constant reinvention. Each of the book's 20 chapters is illustrated by a different artist, and each micro-narrative is, is supplemented by texts and stunning photographs, the former of which sometimes repeats details from the panels. From Ablaze, we have Maria Lovett's Porcelain, $24.99, a hardcover collection of the miniseries collecting one through five, uh, along with cover gallery and bonus material. Beryl's life in the desert, living with her aunt and her cat, is relatively simple, until the day she finds and enters the dollhouse. Stuck inside an ever-changing mystery house that hunts children and turns them into dolls, Beryl goes on a psychedelic journey where she must face the notion of her own limitations and move past them, before she becomes the building's newest prey, a labyrinth of a psychologically thrilling experience told in the way that only love it can tell it. From Franographics, we have Ultrasound Hardcover by Connor Stetschult. Driving home from a wedding late one night during a heavy storm out of cell range, Glenn blows out his tires. He knocks on the door of the only house he sees and is greeted by an uncomfortably friendly middle-aged man, Arthur, and his attractive younger wife, Cindy. The strange couple pours him a drink, and then more drinks, followed by odd confessions and an unexpected offer that Glenn can't refuse. Glenn and Cindy become unwitting test subjects in a mind control experiment after a strange sexual encounter. They search for answers as their own memories become tools for manipulation. 
where ultrasound zigs and zags from there is into a dizzying plot involving mind control, government secrets, gaslighting, and political intrigue that is always one step ahead of the reader, a breathtaking puzzle box of a sci-fi thriller. Ultra uh, Ultrasound has also been adapted into an acclaimed feature film directed by Robert Schroeder and star starring Vincent Carthiesier from Mad Men from a screenplay by the author, and that'll premiere on Hulu in June, $39.99. From Pantheon Books, Our Colors by Gengura Tagame, $32.50, set in contemporary suburban Japan, Our Colors is the story of Sora Idoda, a 16-year-old aspiring painter who experiences his world in synesthetic hues of blues and reds and is governed by the emotional turbulence of being a teenager. He wants to live honestly as a young gay man in high school, but that is still not acceptable in Japanese society. His world changes forever when he meets Mr. Amamiya, a middle-aged gentleman who is the owner and proprietor of a local coffee shop and is completely, unapologetically out as a gay man. A mentorship and platonic friendship ensues as Sora comes out to him and agrees to paint a mural in the shop. And Mr. Amamiya counsels Sora about how to deal with who he is, but it won't be easy. And finally, from tomorrow's back issue 135, starring the Silver Surfer in the Bronze Age, as well as Jack Kirby's Silver Star, Scott Hampton's Silver Heels, Silver Sable, a Silver Banshee villain history, and more, with a cover by Ron Friends and Joe Sinnott. $10.95. A whole bunch of silver going on. There you go, your recommendations for the week of June 22nd. Suddenly there were young kids who dressed differently and were wearing their hair long, and they were very approachable. They were very friendly. They held flowers in their hands, and they walked down the streets, and they were crazy, and they were, they were groovy. And Jerry and I, Jerome Ragney, who's my partner, and I were actors, and we wanted to write a musical. And so all of a sudden, there was a confluence of all these factors. The war protests happened. That was the beginnings of hair. That was James Rado. James Rado was born James Alexander Radomsky. And he is an American actor, playwright, director, and composer, most famously known, as that clip uh, talked about, as the co-author, along with Jerome Ragney and Galt McDermott, of the 1967 musical Hair. And James Rado passed away uh, on June 21st. He died at the age of 90 in Manhattan. I am certainly not super familiar with all of the works and all of the history of James Rado like I am other composers or other, um, you know, theater um, personalities, I guess you could say. Um, but Hair, Hair I do know. Uh, Hair premiered off-Broadway in October of 1967, opened on Broadway in April of 1968. It would run for uh, 1,750 performances it would have multiple productions around the world, a 1979 film adaptation, which is great, and a lot of the songs became top 10 hits. James Rado, who, again, one of the co-creators, 
didn't perform or or didn't play Claude in the uh, off-Broadway production, but once it moved to Broadway, played Claude, who is one of two of the main characters. Well, there's several main characters, but Claude and Berger uh, were the two main ones. Berger was played by his uh, co-partner, Jerome Ragney. So the two of them went on to create the American Tribal Love Rock musical, Um, It was nominated for Tony Award for Best Musical. It didn't win, but it did win Best Musical, um, or Best, I should say, Score of a Best Musical at the 11th Annual Grammy Awards. Hair is just one of those shows that I think you have to experience on your own. That's how I came across it. I had known of the movie, but when I actually got a chance to do the show in 1998 at the age of... um, Oh, God, I'm going to date myself, but I was 25 at the time. I think I was 25. That really was like the perfect age for that kind of musical. And it wound up being my last show uh, that I would do, quote unquote, non-professionally. Meaning after that, now that I was out of college at that point, I was like, okay, I'm doing theater and I'm going to do it professionally from there on out. Um, It is, uh, you know, again, an amazing show to be in. My experience was wonderful. A few of the people in that show I still talk to to this day, including Mr. Kevin Moyer from the old CGS gang. That's right. He was in that production with me. Um, If I was still doing a musical Monday, I would definitely um, eventually get to my experience with this show. So, you know, who knows? Maybe somewhere down the road I'll do that. You probably know, you know, the age of Aquarius and Good Morning Starshine it really is a once-in-a-lifetime show. I I never felt like I had to do it again because that production that I was in was such an event. We did it outside on a, on a really cool stage. We had a local band that was our orchestra, and people just sat in the grass, and it became an event. It really became an event that we probably could have done for multiple weekends, so... So, you know, with the passing passing of Mr. Rado, I mean, I, I just felt I had to um, talk a little bit about my own experience with the show that I still remember fondly to this day. So I'll, I will just end um, this particular segment for Mr. Rado by saying, follow the wind song, follow the thunder, follow the neon in young lover's eyes, down to the gutter, up to the glitter, into the city, where the truth lies. Today is Friday, June 24th. I don't have words for anything that I'm feeling today. So I just found this clip. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. 
More on this story from George Herman. In two related cases and eight separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months. The court split seven to two with Justices Byron White and William Rehnquist dissenting. In effect, the court makes abortion subject only to the decision of the pregnant woman's doctor. It ruled that states may make no laws restricting a doctor's right to decide his patient needs an abortion and to carry out that abortion during the first three months of a pregnancy. After that comparatively safe three-month period, abortions may be regulated, but not prohibited by state law and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. Abortion is somewhat more dangerous at this stage, and states may insist, for example, that they be performed in regulated hospitals. Only in the final stages of pregnancy may states intervene and say no to abortion. The court's decision, written by Justice Blackmun, thus sets limits on the right to abortion on demand. One limit is the time when doctors believe the fetus may be able to survive outside the mother's womb. At that point, usually in the seventh month of pregnancy, the state may take legal action to protect the unborn child, even forbidding abortion, except to protect the mother. The newly liberalized abortion law brought immediate reaction. I think that uh, to uh, raise the dignity of woman and give her freedom of choice in this area is an extraordinary event. And I think that January 22nd, 1973 would be an historic day. This has been the Daily Rios, episode 566, the 51st Digest for Saturday, June 25th, 2022. Talk to you soon. Manchester, England, England, across the Atlantic Sea, and I'm a senior, 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 senior,